Hello and welcome back to EA 461. This week uh, we are discussing disability identities and identity development within higher education and student affairs. But as usual, before we dive into that content, let's hear it from our dispatch from the field. Hi everyone, my name is Allison Richardson. Uh, I am the Director of Equity Initiatives at Cal State East Bay, um, part of the larger California State University system, um, for those of you who might not be aware. I've been in student affairs for over 25 years, and I can still even remember when I first started uh, and finished my master's in, in higher ed program uh, what it felt like and thinking that I was going to somehow magically use all these theories that I had just learned and that it would be, uh, it would make me and make my profession so much easier. I quickly found out that that probably really wasn't the case. Um, after some fumbles and falls, I uh, learned uh, that it really was important for me to understand students individually. Uh, certainly the development, student development theories are gonna help you frame and, and put some understanding to perhaps why things are going on um, and how they've happened and why students are like presenting in certain ways. So I encourage you to understand them, but not rely on them in your everyday use. Uh, what I would encourage you to rely on is your passion um, and also understanding a larger system and how um, many things have been set up for students to not um, thrive or not succeed. Uh, I think we are seeing all of those now, particularly uh, with so much civil unrest. And if you're at all committed to social justice, uh, in whatever or the many forms that that shows up for us in education in particular, I would say learn and understand the historical perspective of why things are happening the way they are um, in education and what you can do as student affairs professionals to shift that for students. I think that uh, for me is where student affairs professionals, um, especially new to the field, can really impact and shift the way some of us old heads um, tend not to be able to think about things in new ways um, and aren't as in touch with so many of the new technological things that we could be doing to reach and connect students. Uh, and I think really pushing the envelope around advocacy for your students uh, should be paramount. So use what you learn, but don't let it stop you from getting to know a student deeper. Um, learn the stories um, and work hard to fight for them and advocate for them always. That's what I would say. Um, and that's the hard part. Um, that's the part that's challenging. Advocating for students is always going to be uh, one of the most challenging things you will confront as a student affairs professional um, because it takes work, it's hard, and sometimes um, you're gonna be maybe ostracized for that. Um, but if you're about it, then be about it and be courageous and stand up and find some new ways to approach students and shift policies 
because that's the only thing that's going to change outcomes for our students. I'm really glad I could be with you today. Um, thanks for listening and I hope uh, some of this made some sense to somebody. Thanks and take care. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's get into the main content for this week. So this week we're talking about disability identities and identity development. Um, and as such, uh, we're covering three bits. We're covering uh, chapter 10 from the Patton, Ren, Guido, and Quay text entitled Disability Identities and Identity Development. Uh, we're also uh, looking uh, more deeply at uh, Forber Pratt's uh, model of a social and psychosocial identity development for post-secondary students with physical disabilities. Uh, so due to the nature that that's covered in the chapter 10, we'll be talking about it in conjunction with chapter 10 instead of separating it out. And so we'll go into a deeper dive uh, on that model as we're covering the chapter. And then we'll wrap up uh, with a uh, chapter by Elisa Abes, Crip Theory, Dismantling Ableism in Student Development Theory. Um, so a critical look at um, disability identity. Um, and then uh, very fortunate to have joined with us today uh, a dear colleague of mine, Dr. Stephanie Gardner-Walsh, who is an assistant professor of special education uh, upstairs uh, in, at Illinois State. Um, and so I have a conversation with her that we'll close out with uh, discussing um, her journey as a special ed teacher and someone who identifies as an individual with a disability uh, navigating the world. So without further ado, let's get started. So according to uh, the chapter, uh, one in 10 college students have some element of disabilities. Uh, some of these are diagnosed, some of them are undiagnosed, some are acknowledged, some are unacknowledged, and some are unknown. Uh, these could be physical, psycho, psychological, uh, as well as learning impairments or developmental disorders. Uh, one of my, I may have uh, told some of you this story, my first ever program that I threw, uh, put on rather, uh, as a graduate student uh, back in the day, was a, an event uh, in conjunction with Hispanic Heritage Month. And I, and I worked uh, with our, um, they were called LASO, Latin American Student Organization, to put on this event. Um, and it was right after uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, had taken, had been confirmed under the Obama presidency. Um, had a, a, and we were talking about uh, the historical implications of the first ever Latina Supreme Court Justice. Um, and it was a, a really great event, very well attended. And the next month I threw an event because it was a monthly uh, diversity dialogue seminar. I threw one about um, disability identities. Um, and I think it was called disability more than just a chair. And the idea was to inform and educate about uh, the notion of disabilities as being more than sort of the physical disabilities that folks so often see and think about, right? That idea of like someone with a wheelchair or someone who is blind and uses a cane um, or someone who is deaf um, and signs, right? So really trying to think about all the various um, diverse diversity within uh, that community, right? And so it's important to note that like many of the marginalized communities we talked about, they cannot be monolithalized. And so what I mean by that is that there is uh, nuance and diversity within this community, right? Um, and so just like within the queer community, as I, as I go back to a lot as a member of the queer community, there are people who, um, 
have many intersections. So they might be queer and a person of color. They might be queer and a woman, a queer uh, and undocumented, a queer and a man, a queer and um, someone with a disability or a queer whose first language isn't English, right? So lots of different um, intersections that uh, influence and uh, make up their identity. Likewise, within disability identity and many other, all the other identities that we've talked about, there are intersections um, and there's diversity within these. And within even uh, disabilities, there's, you know, folks who have psychological or physical or learning impairments. Um, and so there's sort of nuance within that as well. Um, and so, uh, but much like many of these topics, folks are often uncomfortable with having these conversations. And so I started this little uh, 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 dialogue about that event. Well, the first event I threw um, that partnered with our Latin American student organization, our LASO, um, had about 60 people there. And so I, I threw the one for uh, having a conversation about disability and I, and I ordered food because I had a budget for 60 people. Cause I was like, oh, I had 60 people last time. Certainly it'll be the same. I had about four people show up, including the director of our student disability services office, uh, myself, my boss, my co-GA and the GA in student disability services and my friend Valerie, um, who was a uh, hall director on campus. Um, so that was a lot of mo's to consume for what was five or six of us. Um, and so I, it just proved, it illustrated in some regards that people are, well, two things, right? Like partnering with a student organization is a really good idea to increase uh, engagement in your um, events, uh, but also that uh, folks are, often embarrassed and disinclined to talk about disabilities. Uh, something uh, the director of the Student Disability Services Office at Carolina, who I worked with and was one of the first professionals I actually had a relationship with on campus outside of my office, Dr. Karen Pettis, um, when I had a meeting with her my first semester, uh, she showed to me something that was like blew my mind that is so basic and so simple, is that often as children, those of us who do not have a disability, uh, when we see someone who is in a wheelchair or is blind or otherwise has some sort of um, uh, disability that is uh, observable, um, our parents and loved ones or, or caretakers often tell us to not stare, right? Um, so many of you may have experienced that, the, oh, don't stare, you don't want to stare at that person because it's, it's seen as rude. So as we age, often that becomes translated into don't look, um, right? And so for many people who have a disability, uh, they have had an experience where they feel invisible because many people have been trained to not stare, which translates into don't look. And so folks look over that both in actuality when they're in a space, but also you know, prior to the American Disabilities Act, which was passed in the early 90s, um, there didn't need to be equitable accommodations uh, for that community. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of ground to be gained in terms of understanding and supporting um, and uplifting uh, folks who are a member of this community. Um, in regards to uh, the development of thoughts on disabilities, uh, according to the text, so there's much like many of these other um, identity development models, there are um, waves uh, of different ways to approach um, the idea of having a disability. Um, so there's the moral models, the medical models, the functional limitations model, the social models, the minority group models, and the ableist or social justice uh, approaches. And we'll talk a little bit about those as well. So we're gonna start uh, talking about some of the specific uh, models uh, that um, 
that uh, the book talks about. Uh, and we'll start with um, Johnstone's ecological approach. Um, and so um, Johnstone's ecological approach talks about the notion of uh, an externally ascribed identity. And so this is the idea that someone is uh, has a disability and that has been placed upon them. They might not necessarily think of themselves as having a disability, uh, but because of the very nature of their ability level and society, uh, it has been ascribed upon them. Um, and so the next level or the next stage would be the overcompensating. Uh, this is where they have a disclosed identity, but they feel a great level of pressure to perform at high levels. Um, and then the next would be the identities that focus away from disability. This is the emphasis on social bonds and community rather than rehabilitation. The empowering identities, the next one, stage four, is the notion of reclaiming a body um, and legitimizing the experience of being disabled or a person with a disability. And we'll talk about person-first language a little bit when we have a conversation with Dr. Gardner-Walsh towards the end of today. Um, complex identities, whereas we start considering and thinking about um, the intersections of identity, um, and then the common identity, a focus on the common identity with others. Acknowledge that the text really does not go into a deep dive on many of these uh, theories. Um, and so I'm, I'm also sort of talking about them uh, quickly. Um, and so we can definitely have more conversations about the nuances uh, in class if that is something that you wish to do. Uh, the next um, one that uh, the book talks about is Davidson and Henderson's repertoires of autism spectrum development. Uh, and this is a four stage model um, that uh, speaks about the first one, repertoire one was keeping safe, which is the relation of self-protection and disclosure, not necessarily telling folks because it uh, might be unsafe to do so, right? The next repertoire was qualified defect deception, uh, which talks about the, the complexities of having different levels of disclosure to different people um, and whether or not you are comfortable and being, you know, out as someone with autism or an autistic person, again, with that person first language, the nuance there, um, and deferring to an individual's desire and how they self-determine and self-name. Uh, they might be out and disclose to some people, but not all uh, individuals, right? The um, repertoire three was like as resistance, um, which uh, individuals quote, located their experience of disclosure on the spectrum as similar to the coming out experience of LGBTQ and deaf individuals. Uh, whereas repertoire four was an education approach um, in which it was all about building a community as part of their disclosure. These are all built on personal agency rather than imposed or ascribed identities as we talked a little bit about with the Johnstone um, and um, uh, model, right? Um, and so this is particularly important because not all the time are these identities or experiences necessarily uh, observable. Um, and so that there is the ability that folks can engage in quote unquote qualified deception, um, right? And so there's some nuance there. Uh, Davidson and Henderson, uh, according to the text, uh, based their research on students on the autism spectrum, um, but uh, they believe that it was possible to extend these four repertoires to other students with disabilities with impairments not immediately visible. Moving on to Gibson's uh, three-stage disability identity devotable. Um, First stage is that passive awareness typically occurs in the first part of life and can't continue into adulthood. Uh, this is where medical needs are met, but not necessarily having role models. Uh, individuals are taught to avoid attention or association potentially with others uh, who have disabilities. Um, the second is realization, 
This is the most often in adolescence or early adulthood. Uh, individuals begin to see themselves as having a disability, might begin to think about themselves uh, as a disabled person. They might experience uh, internalized hate and anger, uh, concern about how others see themselves. This might also be a time uh, where individuals uh, develop a superhero complex, right? So that's their notion. Uh, and so there's a, uh, within the disability activist community, there's a big pushback against that sort of uh, exceptional narratives. And so, oh, look at this person with a disability, this disabled person, how much they overcame, right? Um, so really puts the emphasis on the individual um, as being exceptional and really um, tying into the American exceptionalism, neoliberal bootstraps mentality of like, oh, anyone can do it. Um, they just have to like work really hard. Um, and so stage three um, is acceptance. And this has parallel stages with other uh, identity development models. Uh, for instance, some of the minority um, and uh, my models on students of color focus on in chapter five, which we covered about three or four weeks ago. Um, in this stage, which is most happens in adulthood, individuals understood their differences in a positive way and integrate into the quote, a majority able-bodied world. Um, and so although this model unfolds in three stages, uh, she does believe that these stages are fluid. And so this is not a hard stage model like some of the others that we've talked about and that individuals can revert back, uh, for instance, from stage three to stage two uh, under certain circumstances. And so uh, that is something uh, to consider as well. So we're gonna move into sort of the bulk of our conversation now around identity development models covering the former pride Aragon's model of social and psychosocial identity development for post-secondary students with disabilities. Uh, they conducted this study uh, right down the street at the University of Illinois, uh, which, uh, according to the authors, Forber Pratt and Aragon, um, is, quote, known as one of the world's most disability-friendly campuses. I'll be interested to uh, hear from you all. I know that at least one of you um, has gone to the University of Illinois um, and so might have some personal anecdotes about that. I know that a few years ago, um, I had a, another student, well, every year, I feel like I have this, at least one student in this class from the University of Illinois um, who, who speaks back and, and talks about uh, that uh, thing. Um, and so they uh, start off uh, their piece saying, uh, quote, despite being over 30 years post-Bogdan and Bickles, Bicklin's 1977 handicapism and a recent NCES report in 2011 that found students with disabilities comprise approximately 10% of all post-secondary enrollments. Such courses and related textbooks on student development have for the most part excluded diversity identity development. And so uh, what they're really saying is that this is a, a vastly understudied um, phenomena. We, for some reason, uh, are not engaging in the same way about diverse, uh, disability identity development in the same way that uh, we are for other identity developments. And I have some reasons and some thoughts behind on why that might be. I think I, I alluded to the, some of that earlier. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about something that might also give some insight into it last week. Uh, but I'll be really interested when we come to class on Monday uh, to see what some of your thoughts are on that. Um, and so the overview on Forward Pride Aragon study, uh, they engage deeply with four college students between the ages of 19 and 24, the sort of typical uh, undergraduate student age. These individuals all had varying physical disabilities um, and they explored the perceptions of disability culture and how they came to identify as part of the group. Um, they did interviews uh, with these individuals and they also did some participant observations, uh, particularly in the residence hall and the resource center. 
Um, and the first cohort of uh, the, these, these students were the first cohort to come of age fully after uh, the American with Disability Acts, uh, which uh, passed in 1990. And so that was a, a sort of a, a watershed moment uh, in terms of access for students with disabilities, right? Um, and so prior to this, uh, students might have had sort of a, a mixed experience of going to schooling uh, prior to the passage of ADA, whereas this was the first cohort of students who, who went to college who all of their K-12 schooling uh, was post the passage of ADA. Um, and I know that, um, you know, uh, Steph, uh, Dr. Gardner Walsh in the in conversations with her as a expert in special education has talked about sort of the passage of laws and the way that laws have impacted the experiences of individuals with disabilities. And for those of us who are above the age uh, where we're not part of that cohort, um, post-1990 schooling have experienced sort of um, a uh, variated uh, experiences for students with disabilities in schooling. Um, so uh, former Pratt Aragon talked about stigma and ableism that definitely influences identity development and that the social model quote of disability posits that disability exists due to society's failure to remove social, economic, and environmental barriers, which then alienates people with disabilities and denies them basic civil rights. And so you can see that this is a space, this is an identity development model, uh, which uh, speaks back to the way that society is disabling uh, more so than the idea that individuals are disabled. So put another way is that it is society that is broken, uh, not people, right? And so it's not that there's something inherently um, uh, negative or bad or unable to be uh, for on the part of the people with disabilities or disabled people, but it's that society is not at a space where it is uh, able to fully support uh, adequately these individuals uh, with disabilities. Um, so uh, they posit that there are four stages. There's the acceptance stage, the relationship stage, the adoption stage, and the giving back to the community stage. The first stage, the accepting stage, this is a phase that uh, all individuals go through. Uh, it's expected and anticipated that many students will have gone through this prior to college. Uh, this is similar in some regards to some of the other um, model, particularly um, the Gibson model, uh, which talks about the realization uh, where individuals begin to see themselves as having a disability. Um, and that acceptance uh, is pivotal for individuals with disabilities to um, be successful and move forward according to the authors. Uh, the second stage is the relationship phase. This is where individuals begin to meet other people with disabilities. They form relationships and uh, learn the ways of a community and begin to build a community. Um, all interviewees and observation participants describe this evidence, uh, this phenomena as significant to their development and their experiences, and that this might be the first time they've seen or interacted with others who share a common experience or identity. This is also very similar for many other element, other identities that experience marginalization, right? So uh, for some individuals who are LGBT, going to college might be the first time they've experienced someone who also is queer, um, or for, uh, you know, students of color who went to a majority white school uh, going to college might be the first time that they are able to experience being in a space that has a multitude of other people who look like them, right? And so there is this sort of common denominator around these historically underrepresented slash marginalized targeted groups that when they're able to 
uh, finally come together in solidarity and community, that is an enriching um, and positive experience for them, us. Uh, the third stage uh, would be adoption stage. This is the adopting the core values of disability culture, that notion of independence and social justice. Uh, so for independence, uh, speaks about the notion of self-care, to being a self-advocate, uh, to being able to do things uh, that uh, they might not have been able to in the past or thought about being able to do in the past. So thinking about, you know, like I grew up in New Jersey, my second job was, you know, it's illegal to pump your own gas in New Jersey, for those of you who don't know that. My second job was working at Texaco as, as a refueling person. Um, for some folks who have a physical disability, pumping one's own gas is a struggle. Um, so it's important to think about um, the experiences that individuals with physical disabilities, I think these are a little bit more easy to conceptualize because you can spend some time as you're moving about the world and understanding how your movement is potentially uninhibited in a ways that individuals with a physical disability is not in uninhibited. Um, and so that's something to consider. Uh, also stairs, right? Um, and and the ways that some buildings still have stairs as their uh, primary way of getting around. I think about um, two things, uh, one at ISU and one at South Carolina, where I was previously at South Carolina, uh, we had a lot of historic buildings that uh, because they were old enough, they were not uh, forced to align with um, um, accessibility laws. And so for instance, our back when I was there, our study abroad office was on the third floor of a building without an elevator. And so while the study abroad office had a conference room on the first floor specifically to be able to meet with students who were unable to walk up three flights of stairs, um, it still sent a message, right, of who can study abroad. If you're a person who is unable um, to use the stairs, does that send a does that that design send a message of who is able to study abroad? Uh, likewise, in a similar vein, uh, with Watterson residence halls uh, here at ISU, from what I understand, and I haven't been in the residence halls, but having students who have lived there um, and and friends who have been hall directors, the elevators only stop at every other every five floors. And so, while I would assume that someone who has a physical disability, they're going to put on one of those floors where the elevator stops. If their friend lives one floor up or one floor down, those individuals are unable to necessarily visit their friends in their uh, room. And so, these are decisions that are made uh, that um, exclude individuals from having the fullness of a collegiate experience. Um, the fourth stage. Uh, is the giving back to the community phase. This moves beyond the individual concerns of independence and social justice and it entails becoming a role model for other. Uh, this is about identity synthesis and embracing one's identity and their own disability. Um, so the um, don't get it yet isn't uh, is an emic concept that is synonymous with quote still in the dark that members of the disabled community at the University of Illinois used to describe individuals who have not yet come to terms with their identity. Um, and uh, individuals who quote get it are ones who are leading successful lives holding jobs, as opposed to living off of uh, SSI. Um, they do something meaningful and constructive with their lives, either by obtaining an education or through athletics or community outreach or whatever. Um, and so uh, this is, um, this is uh, somewhat similar uh, in other identity models, 
um, which students who have achieved X identity judge other students whom they believe belong to the same identity category and find their peers lacking recognition and quote, the proper enactment of X identity. And that's from page 238 of the text. Um, so also of note is that students without a strong disability culture might experience these four stages differently and they might find identity, uh, they might find alliances with other marginalized communities um, or might seek uh, disability culture in online communities, which may provide opportunities to experience uh, some of the in-person activities that Forbo Pride Aragon observed. Um, so um, there's, uh, I think, sort of uh, shortcomings uh, with all of these. Um, um, models um, and uh, here is a sort of um, a model figure 1.1 which comes from, directly from the Forber Pratt uh, text which is a model of social and psychosocial identity development for post-secondary students with physical disabilities um, and so it sort of helps to it, it tries to put a visual uh, on um, the their model um, and so, so some of the implications and application uh, for these models uh, is that the, the aim is that uh, policymakers uh, can revisit existing policies and develop new policies uh, that might help to have a more inclusive space. So I gave some examples of Watterson and the, the study abroad office, right? Um, and so there's limits of the law, right? The law doesn't say that every building has to be accessible if it's a historic building from before a certain time. Um, but does that send a model of who belongs in particular spaces? If institutions are really um, um, if institutions are very serious and very, really serious about inclusion, um, then it goes beyond sort of the limits of the law to ensure inclusion for all members of their community. Um, for campuses, implications for campuses, um, it helps to understand the big picture of identity development and engagement in school, understanding that um, uh, disabilities um, are something that are fluid for some people, um, much like some of the other identity models, um, such as sexuality and gender. Um, you might, uh, well, really all of them, right? You can come to different notions of, you know, I'm thinking even uh, I start. I start to think about some of the identity models, the racial identity development models, um, where you come to more of an awareness uh, of one's own identity. And so, while your identity might not shift in so far as much as like you're still a, a Latinx person, right? You're still a Black African American person. You're still an Asian person when you come to school, and that's not going to change. But your own awareness and experiences and understandings of your identity is going to shift. Um, and likewise with queer. Um, and trans people, um, your experiences and identity might shift or you might come out in particular ways. With disability, something might happen. Uh, whereas you, you know, I have a, a good friend of mine from college who was, um, you know, his girlfriend was driving them back from um, like spring break, I believe. I'm not entirely sure uh, where they were coming from or even what time of the year it was, but they got into a horrific car accident. Um, and he was in a wheelchair for a year um, and to this day still walks with a cane. Um, and so, you know, his experience of being a person with a disability is vastly different than someone who was, for instance, born deaf or blind or, or has a, a, 
a genetic um, disability that is makes would make him unable to walk, right? And so there is a fluidity that exists within disability communities um, that is not necessarily the same within other communities. And so it's um, proper for campuses to really begin to think about how um, identity shifts in general, but in particular for uh, the disabled community um, that it, it might exist and be more fluid um, than some of the other communities. Um, so we're gonna move on now to talking a little about crypt theory, um, dismantling ableism and student development theory. And this is a, a chapter uh, by Elisa Abes. Um, and so she talks a little bit about and reviews the main ideas of crypt theory uh, with a particular eye on how it can potentially hopefully shape theoretical constructs within student development theory. Uh, it's looking specifically at intrapersonal cognitive and interpersonal student development theory. Um, and she, so crypt theory like queer theory and queer theory and crypt theory often um, partnered up a lot and there's a lot of overlap um, so uh, she talks a lot about how crypt theory that is often critiqued like queer theory as being too academic uh, can actually be applied that are no, is in a way, quote, liberatory and empowering for disabled students. She also talks a little bit about the identity first versus person first language. Um, and so moving into the theoretical basis, so I shared that there's a um, overlap with queer theory related to its challenging of dominant discourses, just defining who and what is normal and the fluid and contested nature of identity. Um, crypt theory highlights the interrelatedness between uh, disability um, and queerness. Uh, there's a critique of the compulsory able naughtiness and able mindness, right? So this idea that uh, much like a compulsory heterosexuality, um, compulsory able-bodiedness uh, talks about an idealized normality. Crypt theory reveals the quote plethora of un plethora of unruly possibilities for thinking about the body outside of normative restrictions about what a body should be. Um, and to crip uh, something, uh, much like you know queer, to queer something, to crip something, these are sort of uh, I think they're called gerunds, right? Isn't it two and a verb is a gerund? I'm not sure. Um, my English majors in the room help me out there. Um, and so to crypt something is to expose the discourses of compulsory able-bodiedness and able-mindedness, not only in contexts where disability is purposefully explored, but also in contexts not explicitly focused on disability. Uh, cripping spins mainstream representations or practices to reveal able-bodied assumptions and exclusionary effects. And to crypt student development theory, importantly, is to expose theoretical discourses that privilege able bodies and minds pushing students towards an idealized normal. And so uh, crypt theory and queer theory as well uh, really pushes back on this idea of what is normal and why is normal, why normal is preferred and preference. Um, and so it really helps us to push the idea that, again, as I shared earlier, that it's not bodies that are broken, but it is society that is broken, that is unable to support all bodies and minds. Um, and so it talks about uh, a few different identity or different ideas. It talks about the contested crip identity. Uh, crip theory destabilizes the meaning of disability presenting it as a contested fluid identity, sort of what I've been sharing and talking about how it, it can be fluid and, and uh, crip identity shifts and is malleable through time and space. Uh, to claim crip, uh, according to ABIS, means to identify as disabled regardless of a specific diagnosis. This blurs boundaries, it acts as resistance, a form of resistance that pushes back against dis dominant discourses 
Um, this is, of course, not uh, without critique pretension. Uh, knowledge through cryptismology. If anyone can say that better than me, uh, good work. It's a crypt uh, epistemology. It's the critical social and personal knowledge of production from the perspectives of disabled people. It draws upon standpoint theory, uh, which we've talked about in class. Um, crypt failure and crypt time. Uh, it talks about uh, challenging the neoliberal practices of making disabled identities undesirable because they're unproductive. Crypt time challenges the normalized and disabling pace of life. Uh, and crypt failure uh, produces, uh, vis makes visible um, uh, the productive potential and failing ableist normalizing cultural and educational practices. And so I think um, much like queerness, um, there is this notion of failure and that what is failure and how failure can be a particularly um, generative space, um, but it is deemed as unproductive and uh, un abnormal and not something desirable. Um, and so crip theory and queer theory uh, also sort of kind of own that notion of failure and how it can be successful um, when framed crypt uh, or queered. Um, and, and, and talking about crip time, uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about, the challenging and normalized disabling pace of life, you know, I'm thinking about, um, I went, you know, when I was a uh, incoming grad student at Carolina, um, we had uh, interviews across campus. And even as someone who, um, you know, is able to read a map, um, is pretty self-sufficient, who has the ability to walk, um, moving around campus that I was unfamiliar with to try and find these offices to interview with was a challenge. Now thinking about that for folks whose bodies work and function differently, right? And so how does that continue to perpetuate um, and privilege a normalized body? Um, the third element that Abus talks about is the intimacies of curb relationships. Um, there is this forced intimacy, uh, which is a common daily experiences of disabled people being expected to share personal parts of ourselves to uh, survive an ableist world. Um, the expectation to share very personal information with able-bodied people to be able to get basic access, uh, but it also includes um, forced physical intimacy, uh, particularly for those who need physical help that requires the touching of bodies. Um, and so, you know, while we do want to help our fellow people um, always and be good um, uh, stewards of a community, um, by just assuming that someone needs help uh, infantilizes an individual. And so I think, for me at least, I think it's, it's best to ask, right? Always, always. It doesn't matter um, who the person is, but, you know, offering up assistance, I think, um, is, is helpful. And I think this forced intimacy, um, much like Abus speaks about, it replaces authentic and genuine connections with this idea that there is, has to be, um, you have to be a savior, uh, right? And so it's not necessarily about that, but it's about, you know, being good members of a community where there are people with different ability levels and asking um, your colleagues, all colleagues, whether they are, have a disability or not, like, how can I be a better friend, a better help to make everyone's lives better. And I think that is something that everyone should be doing for one another because the world is harsh um, and hard at times. Um, and so being able to support one another is I think always a good thing. 
Um, and then fourth, uh, Abus talks about uh, the limitations of crypt theory. Um, so crypt theory, uh, much like many of the other theories that we've talked, uh, privileges physical uh, um, disabilities over the formation over other formations of disability. Uh, we still are limited by um, the physical uh, limitations um, and thinking specifically about physical disabilities. And I'd be curious in some of your thoughts on as to why that might be. Um, it doesn't adequately consider the intersections of their identities. I do think that this is getting slightly better. There's uh, a good number of pieces out there that uh, think about uh, crypt theory at the intersection of racialized bodies. Um, I'm thinking specifically about Jasper Puar, uh, does some work around that and some other scholars as well. Um, and that the, another limitation or critique of the crypt theory is that it uh, continues a quote, it continues a cycle of silencing and marginalization. And that's from Bone. Uh, and, and thus it doesn't actually benefit the lives of disabled people. And so I have up here uh, some questions to consider. Um, I'll highlight these and um, we'll, we'll use some of these uh, in class uh, uh, to engage and have a conversation. These uh, questions are, are pulled straight from the crypt theory chapter. Um, so that is the, the bulk of uh, the content. I'm gonna uh, turn it over to my friend, Dr. Gardner Walsh. Um, and I'll see you in just a minute. Hello, uh, welcome. I'm so excited to have with us today uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, Daphne, Daphne, uh, Dr. Stephanie Gardner-Walsh, who is a professor at Illinois State University in the Deaf Education Program. So just two floors up from EAF. She is a CODA, uh, which is a child of deaf adults. She's hard of hearing and multimodal meaning. She can only half hear, her family can only half hear, uh, and she can communicate using spoken English, ASL, or cued speech. Her passion in work revolves around serving those with the ignored types of hearing loss, mild, unilateral, and late onset. Outside of work, she calls herself a race car driver, a triathlete, a mom, and a cat lady. And if we're lucky enough, we might get to see some of that in uh, our conversation today. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Steph. Hi, I hope everybody is well. Um, great introduction. Um, yeah, that is that is who I am. So um, I'll, I'll start off that I do have like that gigantic long formal name, Dr. Stephanie Gardner Walsh. Um, I will tell you that I rarely go by it. Um, I do go, I tend to go by Steph, S-T-E-F. Um, and in the deaf world, we don't tend to use titles or, or last names. And so whatever your name is, you go by. Um, but as, as a faculty member, uh, my students kind of felt uncomfortable with that. And some of my colleagues felt uncomfortable with that. So around the university, I do go by G-dubs, um, which was kind of an honor that my first class gave to me and it spread like a wildfire and I kind of love it. So that's kind of who I go by as this whatever role I am right now. Um, I, a kind of background of me, um, my dad is deaf. Um, and at home, we used a form of sign language called Rochester Method, which was finger spelling everything. And so like, if you can imagine, this is how we had conversation my whole life. And so it kind of sucks. Um, it is a, a very, what we call an oddest perspective, meaning it's a very hearing perspective to have this finger spelling everything. Um, 
if you think of the the history of deaf education um, in 1880 there was this huge conference called the Milan conference that declared sign language was actually a disabling language and it was causing deaf people to be limited so um, kids hands would be tied down so they couldn't sign anymore and they had to only speak and speech read which is exhausting um, and so eventually it came about that we were allowed to use finger spelling because that wasn't really signing it was just clarifying what you can't speech read um the truth is it didn't help anyway um we added in some signed english which really isn't a natural sign language so if i signed a word part when i was speaking i would sign each part individually and so it kind of added in the morphemes but it didn't really give a lot of meaning um since then the the world of asl has exploded as as far as knowing that it is truly a language and that natural sign languages are languages um and it's it's visual it, it's, it has its own grammatical system and that's kind of where I am right now. And so I'm in this mix of worlds that I've had all of these kind of oppressive communication models and I'm able to use my language now, which is really, it's a fascinating spectrum to be in because I am one generation. And so it's very typical that families, oh, that was Katerina coming in and out um families will have one way of communication but for those of us who are in this age group right now we we often have had three or four or five because it's finally accepted um i am a hearing aid user i have a, a progressive genetic hearing loss and so i was born hearing um my hearing started to really progress around first grade um and then when puberty hit a lot of it went and that is very typical in my family um all of the boys in my family are deaf um i'm the, the first girl and so i'm this kind of abnormality um i have passed the genetic traits down we know that of my two girls the younger one is definitely displaying the 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 gene traits and so we'll watch her real carefully the older one so far has been good but we, because of me, we'll watch her real closely just to see. Um, I am, I was supposed to start wearing hearing aids about seventh grade. Um, that didn't happen <laughs> because I was the redhead asthmatic chubby kid and adding hearing aids to that was not gonna happen. Um, so like I was already that weird kid in middle school and I was fully mainstreamed. So there was that. Um, and at that point, IDEA didn't protect us to have academic gifted services and disability services. So you weren't allowed to be academically gifted and disabled at the same time. Um, and so with the mainstreamed classroom, that just means like my general ed classroom. I was in with every other um, kid in my homeschool district. Um, but the, the problem I was having is I was not being able to hear but I couldn't get any services because I was smart. Um, and so I just had to do a lot of work on my own. My parents decided that it made more sense for me to get the academic services because they couldn't keep up with me academically than to get the hearing services that made sense. 
Um, so I just worked harder throughout my entire career. Um, and when I went to college, I was in a deaf education program that happened to have a really big deaf population on campus. So um, I did my undergraduate in Hickory, North Carolina at a little tiny university called Lenore Rhine. No one knows of it. Um, every so often you find a random person who does and you're like, whoa, tiny world. Um, but when we were there, there were, there were about 40 deaf and hard of hearing people on campus, which for a school of 1500 is huge. Um, and I had interpreters in all my classes. And so I went from having to strain to listen and speech read to there's someone flapping their hands in the front of the room and it wasn't for me, it happened to be for a friend, but I benefited from it. Um, and I just kind of leached off of their services because it was there and it was convenient. And I really didn't know that I could have accessed those on my own as well. Um, mainly because I had always been told I didn't need them. When I went to my first job, which was in Durham Public Schools, um, I was the only white teacher on my hall. And I suddenly was in this sea of beautiful dark skinned faces that I didn't know how to speech read. And it was a very different experience because the, the, the skin tone differences made speech reading different for me. And a lot of people will say that that is a thing that they experience between races is that if you're used to reading white lips on peach face or pink, pink lips on white faces and you go to see dark skin, dark lips, it's a very different experience because there's a, a, a shape difference, there's a, a tone difference and you have to learn where all of the mouth movements go that is slightly different. Yeah, and so it was this very weird thing for me because I was in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I being racist by saying I can't read black faces? And it was no, like this is a typical thing that no one ever talked about and I was just floored by. And so I went and got, a new audiogram and they're like, yeah, your hearing is down in the point that you're actually not hearing almost anything of speech clearly. I'm like, oh, but I'm communicating, I'm communicating. And they're like, no, 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 you are speech reading really, really well. And you're probably exhausted every day. And I said, oh yeah, 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 I'm exhausted, but you know, it's a new job and I'm a young teacher. And they said, um, and you're working four times as hard as any hearing colleague because you can't hear. So I accepted it and moved on and got my hearing aids and loved them. Um, they were a huge adjustment. I am a huge Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. And it's like on the way home, um, at, the, at the time my fiance, he's now my husband, he was in the car with me and I kept hearing this weird sound. And I was like, Tim, what is that? And he said, it's the music. I said, no, I know this song. And I'm listening and I'm like, I hear it. It's, it's driving me nuts. What is the sound? And he said, the music turned down the radio and the sound was gone. And I had this wow moment of, I have been missing so much of the stuff I love. Um, so I had to learn how to listen again because suddenly I was hearing voices um, and not having to strain as much. And it wasn't, yeah, hearing voices, kind of funny thing. Um, but I was quite literally hearing voices for the first time in years. Um, and so I went through this like weird identity crisis of who am I? Um, I am a CODA, so I'm a child of a deaf adult and that automatically gives me birthright in the deaf community. Um, and deaf community has this birthright thing going on that a lot of people don't know happens. Like within a 
deaf population, there are people who are part of the community automatically. And so I had this right, but I never felt like I was part of it because my dad didn't do ASL, he did Rochester. So I questioned, did I belong? I know sign language, but is my dad deaf enough? And then I joined because I'm deaf, but I'm very hearing because I grew up with hearing first and I'm, I'm a talker, as you can tell. Um, but I also, I cherish my sign and I cherish that ability to communicate visually and not have to um, depend on listening. I can just take off my hearing aids, be deaf and blend right into a deaf world and nobody would know that I could hear if I needed to. And so it was this identity crisis. And um, as I got into my master's and my doctorate, I started to really dig deeper into this identity. Um, and I found really what it was, were, was in, in models of disability, there are often medical models. And in medical model, I'm, I'm deaf. The doctors say, you aren't hearing, you're deaf, you fall below this threshold, you belong in that category. And so I fit there. But in the cultural model, which is more like the, the language and the identity and the, the social part of it, I didn't really fit fully. I was in a gray zone. So I was deaf and I could blend in, but I was too hearing to blend in fully. And so that social model, I was like, well, I don't know if I belong there, but now two of these, I'm kind of there. And then educationally, which is like the third model of disability, I didn't fit that because I wasn't, I wasn't struggling to learn. I was only struggling to access. So the educational model said, well, you're, you're not deaf. You're just, you, you've just got some hearing stuff going on, but you, you don't really function like these other deaf kids that really need support. And so I didn't know where I was. And, um, I finally found this model by McElroy that focused on the fluidity of identity. And I grasped onto it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can be deaf, but not be fully deaf. I can be this little in-between thing and still belong in this community and need this support and, and, and identify on both ends of the, the hearing and deafness spectrum. Um, and as I'm talking, you're probably like noticing, I use, I use the term deaf very, very readily. Um, there are a bunch of terms that these, these three models will use, like in the medical world, they call me hearing impaired. Um, and it's, that's a medical kind of medical legal term. I don't see myself as hearing impaired because I'm not broken. Um, medically I am, but I don't see this as a problem for me. Um, I'm a deaf educator. I'm from a deaf family. I've likely got a deaf kid. Like this is just normal for me. So I don't see this as a, as a problem. Um, I see it as a barrier because of society. Um, I'm not the problem. It's society hasn't made things accessible. They haven't included closed captioning. They haven't included amplification. So it's really not that I'm the problem, it's society hasn't done its job to include everybody. So I don't really go by that term. If someone calls me hearing impaired, I don't get offended, but it's just not something that I grasp and, and, and feel connected to. Um, I often call myself hard of hearing 
Um, mainly because when I say I'm deaf, it confuses the hearing world. I speak really well um, and I don't sound deaf and that's because I became deaf later. Um, and so people are confused and I, I do a lot of listening. And so they're very confused on how I can be deaf and still hearing. Um, and so I use that hard of hearing term because it helps to clarify for, for a broader perspective. For those of you who can't see, there's um, a ghost behind me now. This is, this is uh, the ghost of Katerina, my, my daughter. Get going, ghosty. Um, happy Halloween, everybody. I, I can teach you that real quickly, like, happy Halloween. <laughs> um, and this is COVID momming. Um, or COVID parenting, I guess. Um, so like I will use hard of hearing all the time. I call myself deaf because it really, it's just easier to say I'm deaf. Um, I will often joke that I'm hard of deaf, that I'm somewhere in between a hard of hearing world and a deaf world, but it, functionally I go back and forth. So I'm this like gray in between um, kind of deaf person and it's kind of awesome. Um, I have found that this is actually the largest group and the largest population among those of us who have hearing loss thresholds. Um, profoundly deaf people are a small fraction. Um, they're the students when we think of like early childhood, they're the they're children that need the most services because they have the least access to communication um, because of parents needing to learn sign language or children need, needing to learn how to use technology to hear. Um, they're a very small group. This middle hard of hearing group is the largest and we're often masked and hidden and trying not to show that we're struggling because we've always been taught to just survive it. Um, and that's kind of where my research ended up. Um, I had a faculty member in my doc program said, go do a lit review on who isn't represented. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. You're telling me to write about literature that doesn't exist. So what do I write about? Um, and it took me a full semester to figure out what she meant. And the, the light bulb finally went on that as I was going through study after study, multiple said this middle group is never studied. And that changed my whole dissertation. And it's it's where I connected. And I said, oh my gosh, I just identified myself as my as my research area. Um, and it's been fun. It's it's interesting. It's it's changed a lot of things in my life. Um, for example, I am a coordinator of a deaf camp in North Carolina. Um, and so I've been coordinating Camp Sertoma for deaf and hard of hearing kids for multiple years now. I keep trying to give it up and it doesn't work. Um, and I don't think I ever could, but we went from only signing kids to now we have signing kids, we have cochlear implant users, we have kids with just a little bit of hearing loss because we've realized that all of these kids need to see peers like themselves. They need to see adults who have been successful and understand hearing loss and they need a camp where they can just be them. Um, I love watching kids come that have always been that like special deaf kid in the classroom and all of a sudden they're at camp and I'm like no you can't do that 
and they look at me like this is the first time I've ever been told no by an adult I'm like no you're just you're just another kid here like we're all deaf get over it enjoy it go have fun but you can't use this card today <laughs> so um it's this it, it to me it's just a cool experiencing seeing kids realize that they have a group that they can identify with um and I think that's it's the thing that keeps me on fire every year um I can be an academic all year but then I know I'm going to just go back and be staff at camp running around climbing trees with kids in the mud sweating like crazy in North Carolina heat and just enjoying myself as a deaf person as well um I think that you know, a lot of time during that week, my hearing aids are on a bench somewhere and I'm just floating around with kids and we're, you know, playing and just having fun and enjoying our, our quietness in the loudest way possible. <laughs> um, and it's fun. It's fun. Um, and I think that is something that has solidified who I am and the, the group of students that I know I have to work with because they're forgotten. They blend in too easily. Um, but they need us. And so I guess where that, that really transitions in your, in your program is as you're thinking as ad administrators, especially, and, and with people working with special education or general education, there are a lot of us who are in these in-between worlds. Um, we might not qualify for special education services because we're doing good enough. Um, but chances are every single day we're working harder than everybody else. And so we're, we're, we're doing well and we're surviving because we're compensating in another way. Um, for me, what that manifests as is I have ADHD. And a lot of that is actually just, I mean, part of it is probably just staff too. Um, but the other part is I'm, I'm putting so much together all the time and I'm taking so much in visually and auditorily that I'm bouncing all over just to get all that information. And so I really do look like I'm a wild kid and I probably was, um, but it's, that's a compensation technique for me. I talk all the time. It's a compensation technique because if I'm talking, I don't have to listen. <laughs> Um, I often at the, I, I, at the, especially middle of the day, I'm dead. I cannot focus at all. I'm exhausted. And it's because typically the beginning of the day is where you put all of the emphasis of the hard stuff. Um, by midday, I can't function anymore. I have compensated and compensated and compensated that in the, that midsection that like, one to three o'clock in the afternoon time, I'm miserable and I just want a nap and it, it's compensation. So in school, I often looked like I was getting lazy during that time where really it was, I was overloaded. I couldn't, I couldn't be stimulated anymore. I had the advantage in high school that that was my PE time and I was allowed to get in the pool and swim. And so I'd get in the pool and I'd swim for an hour and I'd come out refreshed because in the pool, I don't have to listen. And so I got that hour break that I just did nothing except count my strokes and count my breath and try not to drown because my coach was psycho. Um, but that's, I mean, that was something that looking back as a teacher of the deaf, now knowing that as, as, a, as an adult, I was like, oh my gosh, that fit me 
perfectly, that was what I needed, but I never knew how to, how to articulate that. And because I didn't have a teacher of the deaf working with me, I had no one articulating that for me and no one explaining that the whole reason you love that time is because you don't have to listen now. Um, art class was the same way. It was that afternoon session that I could just create and it was beautiful. Um, I tended to struggle with having an academic class in the afternoon. And so it wasn't that I was unable to do the academics. It was, I was unable to listen anymore. I was exhausted. Um, and I found through college that things like note-taking helped me so much. Um, I had a best friend in my class who would take notes and we'd compare afterwards and I could fill in all of the gaps that I was mishearing. And I'd look at her vocabulary versus mine. And I'd be like, oh, I must've heard that wrong. Um, for years, I thought it was a, that I was a bad speller. It, no, I just was a bad hearer. Um, it's never going to get better. I can't fix that ability. Um, and so that's kind of things, a little bit of things to think of. And it's a long, long way to say that that's my story a little bit. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. It was, sorry, I was going to try to hold on the uh, space bar, but just unmuted. Uh, that was great. Thank you so very much uh, for all of that information. I think that was, um, I mean, I learned a whole lot and, and <laughs> uh, also spaces of resonance. Uh, I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, not being deaf enough. Um, I feel that a lot like in the queer community, like, and I know that yes. that happens a lot in a lot of different marginalized communities. Because um, there's this idea of what it looks like to be X, right? Right. Um, and so we're self-describing ourselves within our communities based upon the oppressor. Uh, right. Right. And so like, as you were talking, I was thinking a lot about the queer and trans community, which is my area of uh, situatedness and knowledge. And, and I was just interested to see sort of that resonance there. And also uh, your, your, your conversation, I, I learned so much about the, uh, um, uh, uh, speech reading uh, with your young children of color, uh, right? And so thinking about the intersections of identity, whether, you know, you're a deaf queer person, deaf uh, yeah. trans person, or deaf person of color, or deaf queer trans person of color, all of these sort of intersections of identity that further sort of complicate um, yes. lives because of the systems, right? You talked a bit about how you're not broken, but it's the system uh, that is not that is broken and isn't really helping to make things accommodating. Right. right. Um, and I, you know that that's something I've become very aware of. It's like, what am I doing that's preventing somebody else from accessing my stuff? Um, as even things like as Katerina popped up, I quick voice that it's there because I've had this this realization that someone might have missed that. And that's a port, an important part of what's going on in my environment. And so I like to, to put those in so that I'm giving access to someone else that might not have it. Um, it's interesting that you, you said about the, the similarities between um, the, the intersectionalities. Um, when I wrote my dissertation, I based it on um, mixed race theory and how, you know, someone who is biracial or multiracial often fall, falls in this other category and they're not enough. 
Um, and I got a lot of pushback from it because people thought that it would be offensive. And um, I brought in a lot of people to, to advise me and help me through that. But I said, you know, there's this middle ground that a lot of people aren't un understanding that there's, there's this emotional turmoil happening. Um, and as you talked about intersectionality, I have to show you the sign for intersectionality because it's one that I recently, it's, it's developed recently because it really is a, a, a newer concept and I love the sign. So you take your hands and you bring in your roots, you weave them together, going upward, interlock them and then make a circle. So it's like you bring your whole history together and it links. And I just, I loved that, that sign because I was like, that is exactly what intersectionality is. It's, it's everything coming in and, and tying and you can't pull any piece out, but it makes you whole. And that's what I kind of love about sign languages is, is, is visual like that. It really takes the meaning of what is intersectional and visualizes it for, for the, the communicator. And when I saw that there's, there, were, there was a long discussion on which, which definition was better, which sign was better as it was developing. And that's the one that, that held. And like that, it's, it's cool. It's cool stuff because the language develops just like English is developing. That is, that it, that is really cool. It's really cool. I had a uh, really cool opportunity uh, to take a class that you hosted this past summer. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was a professional development session uh, for faculty to unable your course, I think. was Yeah, unable your course. Um, and you started with um, kind of, uh, I'm trying to cue you up. I, you're, the way you phrased it was so much better and more articulate than I'll be, but basically like you started with, uh, you know, changing the course to be for those hard of hearing uh, because the way that you explained it the accommodations for that community that you would put into your pores help virtually everyone. Right. Um, and it's something that like resonated with me. I was like, oh yeah, duh. Cause like ever since my little one was born we've turned on closed captions because when he was little it was, we didn't want it loud. So to wake him up and now it's, he's loud and we need to be able to read <laughs> what's going on the TV, right? And so it was this like click moment where I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, it was just a really great and well-designed uh, course uh, that I got to take with you this past summer. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the truth about accessibility. Like the more accessible you make the world, the easier it is for everybody. Um, it's, it's things like if you, if you're building a house and you design it with extra large doorways so that a wheelchair can get through, it's not just going to benefit a wheelchair user, but it's also going to benefit you getting your couch through. Because now you don't have to try and figure out how to get it upright and together this summer. <laughs> Steph and I helped a mutual friend move out and me, her and her husband moved, was it a, yes, a couch upstairs and through a very narrow doorway. It was, it was awful. Terrible. But I mean, if that would have been designed for, like if the stairwell was wide enough that we could easily put in a chairlift, mm -hmm. that couch would have gone right through so easily instead of needing four of us to go up that stairwell. Um, and it's I things like that, it, it becomes right? a universal thing. Um, captioning most of us are are on our phones watching stuff if you have the captioning you you're not disturbing people around you um for second language learners it gives you the ability to see what was just said because it, first language users speak so rapidly and so now you have that clarification 
um, young readers benefit from captioning. So it's it's that universal thing that the more you think about the small population, the better it is for everybody. Um, in the vision world, it's like if if you set up headers on all of your documents and use the the actual built-in header format, you can instantly make a table of contents. Well, that's something that you benefited from just because you were working with a screen reader capability. And so it's just, I don't know, it's it's a neat thing that the more you think about surfing others, the larger of a population you benefit from. And I think it's 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 hard to get started. Um, but I think that it's not difficult once I, I I would say as someone who strives very hard to make my materials accessible, it was hard at first, but the mm -hmm. more I've done it, the easier it becomes because it's like second nature, you're realizing how 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 it ends up saving time even on the back. Right. Um so yeah. And yeah, and that's I think that's something that I have yet to find a textbook that talks about universal design in that way. Hmm. That, you know, it's always a learning curve. You always have that small learning curve at the beginning that's frustrating and slow and tedious and you Google a ton of things on. But once you do it, it's it's easier for everybody. Um, and as a world, we know that there are not enough positions for accessibility. And, and adding accessibility after the fact often takes away some of the 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 meaning and some of the the meat that you're trying to portray and so like if we just do it right up front as the creators we are the people who are like no no no, that didn't work let's fix this so that it is right then we're really getting our content out and everybody benefits for sure absolutely well uh steph Thank you so much uh, for your knowledge this morning and your wisdom. It was, uh, as always, uh, great to talk with you and learn with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, hopefully the students appreciated it as well. Um, and I look forward to going and um, getting back on the bike with you sometime soon. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And great. if anybody has questions or comments or thoughts, pop up. I am totally open to questions. Like there's nothing too weird or awkward to ask me. I am pretty much an open book. So if you have a question, I'll answer it. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Steph. Have a wonderful rest of your morning. Absolutely. See you later. Thank you all so very much. Thank you. Special thanks to Dr. Gardner Walsh uh, for joining us today. Um, and for all of you for being uh, wonderful and generous and kind people. Um, I love you all, and I will see you in class on Monday. Uh, have a great rest of your day.